I want to continue to show you the existence of this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in that it's an eternal priesthood. So we looked at Jacob who succeeded uh, his father Isaac who in turn succeeded his father Abraham who succeeded Shem in this order of Melchizedek. Shem in turn had succeeded Noah, the priest of this order. Now I want to show you, as I was mentioning earlier, that there was a continuation of this priesthood running in the background, even as the law is about to be established from Mount Sinai. Come and look at Exodus 19. And I want us to focus on verse 6 of Exodus 19. Now Exodus 20, Exodus 20 is where the law is given. Exodus 19 is clearly before the law, before the law of Sinai. God is about to enter into a covenant at Sinai with a people who already have the covenant of circumcision, which was the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now he's about to enter a covenant in which he requires people, requires the nation of Israel coming out of the seed of Abraham, coming out of the loins of Abraham, he requires them to obey the law. All right? Now I'll speak briefly about that when I, after this. I want to show you that before that law and that covenant is enacted that they are already priests, priests who have come up out of Egypt, priests who have been in Egypt amongst the children of Israel. I wonder what law they would be the priest of or what covenant they would be administrating if they were in Egypt. You don't have priests until and unless you have a covenant. Priests are the administrators of the covenant. But, well, then let's look. I want to set this up in a broader context. And that's what God said to Israel through Moses. Verse 3, Moses went up to God, up Mount Sinai, and called to him from the, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel that you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to Me above all people. 
for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the children of Israel. All right, I want to move over to verse 6, uh, rather to verse 9. He says, This is what you shall say to the priest and to the people. That is in here, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through, to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So God had given instructions to the priest and to the people. Look at it again in verse 24. He says, verse 24, Then the Lord said to him, Get away down, go down, and then come up, you with Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break, uh, lest he break out against them. Twice he references the priest and the people. He hasn't established the Levitical order yet. Who are these priests? And they've come up out of Egypt. Keep this in mind then from the earlier, earlier part of this reading at verse 6 where God says to Moses, I brought you out on eagle's wings and then he says, although the whole earth is mine, you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Wait a minute, is that what ended up being the, the case at Mount Sinai? An entire kingdom? The whole people? Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Is that what ended up being? No, one tribe of twelve was then appointed was later appointed. But what was the original offer? A kingdom means royalty, a royal priesthood is what God offered. Think of what Peter says in his epistle when he speaks of the Gentiles as who were not a people, being, quote, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That's the offer. You've got priest functional before the law. No, absolutely. This royal priesthood, this order of royal priests 
is the continuing reality even when the law exists. The law was given because of transgression until the seed should come and I've explained that already in prior messages. God knew that Israel would sin, the wages of sin is death, He intended to preserve a people until the seed should come but they were all going to be subject to death because none of them would keep the law perfectly. So, I mean, if you ate fruit from a tree that God said, don't eat from, and the consequence is that you will surely die, what would happen if you murdered somebody? Fruit from the tree, relatively benign, so it would seem, except that anything that separates a man, a person from God, is sin and the condition that results is that one is in separation from God, one is in a state of death. So all Israel would have been annihilated. Why did God give the law then? Why is it said that the law was given because of transgression? What does that mean? It means that the law provided punishments for violations of law that only infrequently required the ultimate price of death. So if you stole your neighbor's ox, what was the punishment? You had to restore and pay a penalty but you weren't killed. Because Israel could not keep the law that violated a relationship to God, they would have all been annihilated. But God provided mercy through the law by specifying what the punishment for sin would be under the law. Some of the punishments for sin included death in some cases, but in the vast majority of the cases it did not include death. Therefore the prosecutor, the Ha-Setan, could only ask for the, the consequences of the violation of those laws as specified by the law itself. He couldn't ask for their annihilation. And so God preserved Israel until the seed came when they were no longer under the law. But even that, you see, was laid on top of the royal priesthood, laid on top of the Melchizedek order to preserve a seed in the interest of the coming forth of the Melchizedek order in which not just Jews would be saved but God would call a people from every tribe, tongue, language and nation and would assemble them as His people in the person of Christ. Even David prophesied when he said in the second psalm, God speaking, speaking of Christ says, Ask of me, 
and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Ask of me, I'll give you the ends of the earth for your possession. Why? Because that was the original promise. So when David is introduced to us, here's an interesting introduction of David coming from the book of Matthew. It is the genealogy of Christ in the book of Matthew. It it defines Christ as being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthew, and so on. Yeah, let me read it to you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now between David and Abraham, you'd have to flip the order over because Abraham comes first. Between Abraham and David are fourteen generations. So why do you begin with David? Why not with Abraham? Because David, you see, is the first royal priest of this order. He's a king who will rule in Jerusalem. He is one who carries the title Prince of Peace. If you're the king of Jerusalem, if you're the king in Jerusalem, you are the Prince of Peace in type and shadow. He's royal. He's the one from whom the line of royalty comes. The promise of this royal line was established by by Jacob when he gave it as a designation to Judah, saying to Judah that his descendant would tie his colt to the vine and wash his robes in the blood of grapes, clearly meaning Christ would come, the high priest forever of this order would come and he'd be the royal priest, the first of this order in the restored, uh, when it crops up again, according to the promise, the first of the order is David. So to highlight that Jesus is the son of David and therefore the royal line has been resurrected, it says Jesus is the son of David who is the son of Abraham, which is to say he's the heir of the promise. That's why, that's why David as a representative of this royal line, enters the tabernacle and eats the showbread. He's not a priest of the order of Levi that waits and serves in the tabernacle. He's a priest of a higher order. The lower order always bows to the higher order. So Levi tithes to Melchizedek in the loins of Abraham, the lesser and the greater. The reason David could get away with it is he is, by God's designation, 
the restored priest of the royal line, carrying forth the promise given to Abraham. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, let's move this in, let's close it in. I've laid out for you the existence of this royal priesthood to attend the order, to attend the covenant for the producing of sons. And before Jesus, we have examples of the functioning of a priesthood, even when Israel is brought up out of Egypt and just prior to the enactment of the law from Sinai, there are priests. And God's promise is not the promise that would end up being the one from Sinai, the promise is the original promise. Though the whole earth is mine, I'll make you, I'll make you a nation of royal priests. Who would this serve if the whole nation of them were priests, kings and priests? Who would they serve? What would they do? Well, royal priests represent the living God to mankind. Had they not rejected that offer, God would have enlightened the whole nation there on Mount Sinai and commissioned the entire nation to represent the Lord to all mankind. Why? Because that was the promise that a seed, a seed would come forth from which blessing would be to all mankind. Now God knew ahead of time that they would not accept this promise, but He offered it to them anyway because He's righteous. So they couldn't say, had you offered us the promise that you made to our forefather Abraham, we would have accepted it. He offered it to them, they refused. So the law was given to keep them alive until the seed should come. When the seed came, the seed is Christ. Galatians tells, uh, 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 Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians tells us that God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Here it says, verse 19, verse 18 rather, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting men's sins against them, and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. Now, when we are in Christ, we are restored to the economy of the seventh day. We don't live by the sweat of our brow, we live by an inheritance from God as the sons of God. God has committed his, the body of Christ into the care of fathers who are like God the Father. John said, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. God requires these fathers to take care of his house, the house of God, not a church building, not an institution, but a people. He means for those who serve him in this capacity, like Melchizedek, who confirmed the promise that had been given to Abraham, he means for the stronger, he means for the greater, he means for the more mature to raise up the lesser, the lesser in maturity, the lesser in faith. That's why in the example of this, God even committed Jesus, His Son, when He was a youth, into the care of a righteous man. Paul speaks of it this way, I labour that Christ might be formed in you. And we toil, he said, to present every man complete in Christ. The whole matter of a spiritual father is because the house of God is shepherded and cared for by those who know God as mature sons of God. They have been charged to raise up the house of God in the image and likeness of Christ as one corporate man. Whatever is required of their time to do so, God puts on them the burden of doing that. The tithe is not payment for the services of fathers, the tithe is the recognition that we're not orphans, we are sons first and foremost, and as sons we do not live by the sweat of our brow, as sons we live out of an inheritance. The term in the Greek is the word klerou, klerou, and to have an inheritance one is designated as the, uh, the possessors of a clerou or a kleromos, which is where we get the word clergy. We have an allotment from God. To bring us to maturity so that we may fully engage our allotment, both in terms of gifts and callings, and the economy that supports gifts and callings, God puts us in the hands of righteous fathers. So Paul would put it this way to the Corinthians, he said, I became your father by this gospel. 
Now this is an eternal fathering, this is a spiritual fathering because the fathers are not necessarily natural fathers. But no one in the house of God is fatherless, no one in the house of God is an orphan. God turns the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers so that the family of God might be established in divine order in the earth. The bringing of the tithe is not according to any law, that's why we don't bring a tithe to a building. When the tithe was asked to be brought to the storehouse, that was to the temple so that there would be meat in the house. But the house of God is the person of Christ, so there's no building to which the tithe should be brought. The building of God's house is according to families, spiritual families, and the fathers of these families are the type of the priest of the order of Melchizedek. Everybody in this house is a royal priest, but not everyone is competent to function as a royal priest. Those who have been designated as the fathers take up the role of surrogate fathers where God Himself is the true Father and inasmuch as the tithe belongs to God, the tithe is delivered to the fathers who take care of the house of God. If you don't have a spiritual father, then you don't have a place to give the tithe. Think about it, is that a good thing? If you don't have a father, what are you? Who in the world that is fatherless, what is their, what is their situation, what is their condition? They're orphans, they are orphans, they belong in no house, they have no inheritance, they have no identity and their only purpose is to survive. The contrast is to have a father whom God has assigned to you to raise you up in maturity so that you may fully inherit all that is yours. Inasmuch as not everyone in the house of God has a destiny to be a father, those who are the fathers serve in the fashion of confirmation of your sonship, of your identity, of your purpose and calling and have the responsibility before God to raise you up to maturity. To them the Scriptures refer when it says, obey those in authority over you, that they may give an account to God with joy and not with grief because it wouldn't be profitable to you. The order for the supply of the fathers who take care of the house of God is the tithe. That is true 
in as much as we are under the order of Melchizedek. Royal priests tending a covenant that existed before the foundations of the earth to produce sons of God in the earth according to the promise that God gave to Abraham which was fulfilled in its totality and in its excellence in the person of Christ and now it is formed up and arranged together as the body of Christ. So I elaborately established a foundation in which you might understand the tithe. All of a sudden the law of Moses receded into obscurity because the order of Melchizedek being an eternal order has returned to the earth consistent with the fulfillment of the promise to bring a people out of every tribe, tongue, language and nation and assemble them as the Corpus Christi and to raise them up in maturity that they might become the exact representation of that which was put forth in pristine clarity and in absolute perfection in the standard of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're raised to. If you have no interest in that, if your only interest is in being sinners saved by grace, I can understand why you don't think the tithe has any place in any of this. You aren't gaining anything if you don't believe in the tithe. You're not gaining anything. What money you may quote save, here's what you here's the, the, the offset. It is impossible for you to become mature without the tutelage and raising up of a mature father. It's impossible. So you'll always be immature. If you're immature, you cannot handle the range of what the gifting of God is in you. You're stuck at the place of provision and protection. But Christ living in you to demonstrate His excellence, that happens in a mature saint. It doesn't happen in children. We give children their bread we establish the mature in their gifts and calling. No child can be established in his or her gift and calling because they're not ready. While while the heir is a child, he must be subject to tutors and governors until the time set by his father and the reason for tutors and governors is to shape his character so he can come to his inheritance. So you will never come to your inheritance as long as you're immature. You'll be saved, you'll have enough to eat and drink, you will live in this world and God will protect you, care for you, but you will not represent the Lord. Your focus will never be on the showing of who Christ is. That is reserved for the mature, not for children. That's why in the early examples I gave, 
One of the first things that people who turn back routinely do is they withdraw the tithe. First thing they do is they take the tithe off the table. What does that tell you? Tells you that's the most important thing to them. And that's why they come to nothing. Not because they left, but because they were immature. And with, without a father, you won't ever come to maturity. Without a father, you will live off scraps. You cannot be trusted to handle serious revelation and insight. One of the things I've noted is everyone who's gone back manifests their falling, their going back, by going all the way back. You cannot hold on even to the things you once had. That's why religion awaits everyone who refuses to continue on as a son. The tithe is elementary. The tithe is in the form and fashion of unrighteous mammon. If you can't rule over unrighteous mammon, you must be insane to think God's going to give you rule over what's precious and important to Him, especially His house, especially His children. The tithe is symptomatic. It's not a big deal. But for some people, it is everything. And if they can't get past that, they will live and die without ever knowing what they missed. And what you will miss is the representation of the Lord carrying the presence of the Lord in a mature fashion with the intent of displaying Him as He is. There will never come a time for the immature, there will never be a time when they are revealed with Christ in the glory of His appearing here on this earth. That's why I think they are obsessed merely that part of the gospel that indicates you'll go to heaven when you die. There is no usefulness in the portraying of Christ here in the earth, so all of their hope is in going to heaven when they die. Tragic, sad. I don't teach you these things so that you would tithe to me. I teach you these things so you'll understand the importance of the tithe. How moving past that in the ability to trust God is the first step, elementary step, on a journey that ultimately concludes with Christ appearing 
in and through your person wearing your face. I'm Sam Solon. I make no apologies for the directness of my speech. We're at a time when the Lord is busy, busily assembling immature people. This is the harvest. This is the harvest to come at the end of the age, a mature body of Christ, not newly planted seed. There's nothing to harvest in sprouts of newly planted seed, but the full ear, the full corn in the ear is what is available to be harvested. Mature people, mature in the image and likeness of Christ. Don't miss out on that. It's available to you. It's available now in this day as never before in the history of the church. I'm Sam Solon. I hope this is a blessing to you. It was my privilege and honor to present it to you. See you then. Bye-bye.